The first days of a leader's rule are very important. Leader's activities reveal his priority and agenda. Jesus had an agenda when he came to this earth. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For a child shall be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts shall accomplish this. Jesus came to this earth to bring justice and righteousness and peace. How will Jesus accomplish that? Well, we are going to learn that it is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Ultimately fulfilled when Jesus returns. But what I want to focus on this morning is where Jesus starts. How Jesus begins this work of bringing peace and righteousness to this world. What lessons can we learn about a world full of terrorism, persecution, injustice, oppression, and misery? Where do we start? Where do we begin? How do we have some kind of impact on all that is taking place in the world? What can we learn from Jesus' example? We find this morning that Jesus starts with bringing reform to the temple. Our theme is that Jesus' reforms begin with reforming the temple. In dealing with the world's problems, Jesus begins with the temple. The focus of our narrative this morning is indeed on the temple. I'd like you to look with me at Matthew chapter 21 as we read and take note of the emphasis on the temple. Starting with verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The emphasis is that these things took place in the temple. Upon entering Jerusalem, the first place, the first venue, the first occupation of Jesus is notably the temple. 
Notice Matthew 21, verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. The very first place that Jesus goes upon this announcement of his kingship, Jesus came entering Jerusalem as a king. Behold, your king, riding unto you on the foal of an ass. He came into Jerusalem as a king. On his first day of kingship, Jesus enters the temple. A very simple idea that should not be glossed over or neglected into the temple. For on this occasion, Jesus begins the temple reforms. And I want us to note this morning these temple reforms that Jesus is inaugurating. First, upon entering the temple, Jesus drives out of the temple people doing business. His first act in the temple was to drive out all those who are participating in business in the temple. Jesus rid the temple of those who sold the pigeons and changed the money. Notice verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus found fault with those that were selling in the temple. He also found fault with those who were purchasing in the temple. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. It wasn't just the merchants, but it was those that were availing themselves of the merchandise as well. Jesus found fault with both. It was not to be a place of business. It was to be a place of worship. And Jesus did this quite aggressively. Our verse is translated, he drove out all who were in the temple. It has a connotation of force. Not always is this word accompanied with force, but is the usual connotation. Probably force was involved, especially as we look at the account and it tells us that he overthrew the chairs and tables of the uh, sellers and the money changers. Therefore, it's pretty apparent that Jesus used force. It was a demonstrable show of contempt for those both selling and buying in the temple. The question is, why was Jesus so adamantly opposed to that particular practice? He tells us in verse 13. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus saw this practice as being inconsistent with the purpose and design of temple worship. What was wrong with what they were doing? If you notice in verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Two things were needed for temple worship. There was to be offerings. Many of those were financial offerings. They were offerings of money. There was a temple coinage that was used. They didn't use the regular currency of the Roman government. They had their own coins. And so money had to be changed in order if you were to make a financial offering. It was kind of like an ATM. And instead of having it outside, they put it in the temple to make it more convenient for worshipers. Secondly, you needed a sacrifice. A lamb. A bull. Or in this case, a pigeon. It's interesting, they were selling pigeons in the temple area. A pigeon or a dove was an offering that was to be offered by those that were extremely poor. If you couldn't afford a lamb according to the Old Testament, or a bull, you were able to offer a pigeon or a lamb. Listen to this, Leviticus 5, 7. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And so there were these pigeons that were made available to the poor that could come and worship in the temple. But rather than providing a service, rather than providing a help, rather than promoting worship, Jesus says that they were robbers. They were thieves. And the temple had become a den. A modern translation of that would actually be a hideout. It's kind of like a criminal hideout. You think of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and they they would flee to that place of refuge when they committed their crimes. Here he says, you have made the temple place a place of refuge, a place where you can hide out, a place where it is safe to steal from others, where this practice is going to be able to be tolerated and looked on with approval. They were shortchanging individuals. They were providing these pigeons at exorbitant prices. They were gouging people by changing money from the currency to the temple currency. And Jesus finds fault with their abusing the poor. But it's more than just the abuse that he finds fault with. For he finds fault not only with the seller, but also with the buyer. For these things never should have been a part of temple worship at all. It should have been outside. There were a street of shops just outside of the temple. But people became lazy And people became opportunistic, and you put those two things together, and eventually resulted in, in the court of the Gentiles, which already was viewed as somewhat unholy, and uh, just Gentiles are there, 
they corrupted the worship of the Gentiles by saying that the money changers and the pigeons could be there, okay? You couldn't have them where the Jews were, but you could have them out there. Still technically a part of the temple area. And Jesus said this played no part. It should not have happened. Jesus is now playing a prophetic role concerning worship. Just like Jeremiah had done back in Jeremiah chapter 7. Listen to these words. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fatherless forever. I will let you dwell here if you do what is right. But if you pervert justice, if you pervert holiness, if you take advantage of others, I will not let you dwell here. And Jesus, as he enters the temple, will not let those people dwell there. He will not let them stay. For now is the beginning of the kingdom. Jesus had passed these same stations many times in the past. But now it's the beginning of the inauguration of the kingdom. This is the first step as Jesus begins to bring about reformation. And he drives the people from the temple. But more than just a prophetic role, it's also a messianic role. Because in Malachi it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. One day Jesus is going to return. And he's going to return and he's going to purify the worship of God for all time, in all place. This is just the inauguration of it. This is just the beginning. This is just a taste of when Jesus comes in judgment and he will not tolerate false worship. He will not tolerate injustice. The second reformation is that Jesus brings into the temple those who were formerly excluded, namely the lame and the blind. Jesus not only turned the tables upside down, but he turned the traditions upside down as well. Jesus does some amazing things in this passage. Just imagine someone coming in and creating this havoc of overthrowing chairs and tables and driving people out. And now he does the unthinkable. 
and that is that he welcomes into the temple the lame and the blind. Notice verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him, key words, in the temple. This is the last healing account in the word of God of Jesus. It's a climactic event. It is Jesus moving from healing on the mountainsides to healing in the temple. The blind, the lame, were not allowed in the temple. That was not originally what God had taught. This practice came about out of two specific incidences. One of them had to do with David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'm not going to read the whole passage there, but in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David forbids the lame and the blind from entering into worship. The other passage of note is Leviticus chapter 21, verse 17, which reads as follows. Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long. There was no one who was, had a physical infirmity that was allowed to be a priest. It was meant to be a type of Jesus who would be the perfect priest. A perfect offering of the sacrifice. Of one who needed not to offer first for his own sin and then for the sin of others. So there was no one that would, had a physical impairment that was allowed to be a priest. He could not offer a sacrifice. But that did not exclude people who weren't priests from the worship of God and from bringing a sacrifice. But eventually it was interpreted by the rabbis that no one ought to be bringing a sacrifice who had some kind of physical infirmity. So if you were blind, if you were lamed, you were an outcast. Jesus brought the outcasts into the temple. Jesus welcomed those who previously were not welcomed. But he healed them. He made them well. He took away their infirmities. And ultimately, of course, he takes away the sin of those that place their faith and trust in him. The temple's leader's response to these forms. They saw the amazing things that Jesus was doing, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, now wonderful there is used in the terms of a wonder, a amazement. When we think of wonderful, we think of so oftentimes the things that are, that are neat or great or pleasing. But here the wonder is spectacular, amazing. Hard to understand. They looked at what Jesus did. Standing back, 
watching him drive people out of the temple, watching him overthrow chairs and tables, and then welcoming these blind and lame people into the temple, and then healing them. And they're taking it all in. And then on top of that, we have the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They are, these children are praising Jesus as the son of David, as the king of kings, as the one who would come, as the messianic deliverer. Children are giving him that praise and they're pulling out their hair. They're outraged. How could you praise such a person? How could he be the Messiah? This overthrower of tables, this interrupter of worship, this welcomer of the blind and the lame, even though he's doing these these miracles, they were put off by what Jesus was doing. It tells us in verse 15 that they were indignant. The leaders wanted Jesus to silence the children and to stop these activities. So in verse 16 it says, And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus, don't you hear what these children are proclaiming? Aren't you going to silence them? Aren't you going to set them straight? Aren't you going to reveal the truth to these children? Aren't you going to let people know that you are not the Messiah? You are not the King? Aren't you going to denounce this undeserving praise? Are you going to be in the temple and allow this worship of you to take place? They're just amazed. Jesus, in return, cites this scripture. Do you hear what these are saying, verse 21? Jesus said to them, yes. Yes. I hear. I'm aware. And more than that, it's appropriate. It's deserved. Yes, have you never read Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. Quotation from Psalm 8, verse 2. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Jesus doesn't finish the verse, but they could. And Jesus says, yes, I hear. Don't you know that the infant's And the babes are going to bring forth praise. Why? To silence the enemies. Guess who that is? It's the priests. Those that are opposing Jesus. Those that are allowing this false temple worship to occur. He's saying, you are enemies. You are the problem. And these children are shutting you up. These priests didn't know what to say. They came to Jesus privately They were afraid of the crowds. The priests indeed were silenced by the children. They addressed Jesus but could not change the situation. The children saw 
what they should have seen, namely the appropriateness of what was taking place. These children could understand. These well-educated, authoritative priests missed it. How often it is that children can understand things that people who know better fail to understand. Jesus' response is to leave them. Verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus left them to themselves and to their fate. These actions were more symbolic than having lasting effect. Wouldn't be long before those money changers are back in the temple. Wouldn't be long before worship is back the way it always was. It wasn't intended to be a a last long purification. It was a demonstration. It was a statement. It was a declaration for anyone who would listen of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. But one day Jesus is going to return and again worship is going to be purified and it will be forever. And only those that worship in spirit and truth will be able to enter his kingdom and be with him forever and ever. Of course, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. The sacrifice official system comes to an end. A rather profound demonstration that Jesus indeed is the Savior, and that there is no more sacrifice for sin, for there literally is no more sacrifice for sin as there is no more temple, as there is no place of worship such as that. Conclusion. What are we to learn from this passage? First, when the worship of God is corrupted, all of life in society is negatively affected. There needs to be reformation. When the worship of God is corrupted, all of life in society is negatively affected. The health and wealth gospel has negatively influenced our culture. It would be better, it would be better if churches that didn't preach the true gospel would be empty. You understand that? It is worse to go to a church that doesn't preach the gospel than to stay home. It is worse for their family. It is worse for our culture. And their worship is totally unacceptable to God. He does not hear their prayers. He does not accept their worship. He takes no joy in what takes place. Jesus would drive them from the sanctuary. Reformation needs to begin with the church. Because of the health and wealth gospel, wealth is understood as a sign of God's blessing and and poverty be a sign of God's disapproval. It is given license to ignoring the poor and the impoverished. 
It has turned the worship of God into a materialistic form of getting personally rich at the expense of others. The pragmatism of the church growth government, excuse me, the pragmatism of the church growth movement has resulted in the abandonment of the cities. It was thought by church growth gurus that if the church is going to grow, it needs to leave the cities and go to the suburbs. Because people don't want to go into the city in order to worship. Make it convenient. Make it safe. Provide a lot of parking space. Make it easier. Go to the suburbs and plant your churches and they will grow. And that's what the church did. And the church grew. And the church abandoned the cities. And the thought was that people will drive to the suburbs, but people won't drive to the church. But what about those people who don't have automobiles? What about the poor? What about the people that are limited to public transportation? Who cares about them? They can't offer the church much. They don't give much. They're not educated. Who cares? At least the church is growing numerically. It's more comfortable, inviting, and safe. There is a new wind blowing, and I'm really pretty excited about it. There are reformations that are coming to the church and the Christian faith. And one of them is the great church planting movements that are taking place in the inner city. More and more now, the church is moving back. Storefronts, house churches, but people are going back into the city as a means of dealing with poverty, crime, and corruption. What's the answer to the inner city's problems? Finally, the church is saying it's the absence of the gospel witness. It's the absence of God's people. If we're going to redeem that culture, if we're going to redeem, if we're going to make a difference, then we have to get back. We have to live among them even as foreign missions does. We have to begin to look at America in a missional mindset, says this new movement. We should get behind such works, support such works, understand the element of America as a mission field, the danger. You know, the inner city is a tough place to work. There are many places overseas that are tough places to work. We shouldn't avoid them because they're tough. There's a great need overseas. There's a great need here. Jesus began with the Reformation of the temple. 
Secondly, there needs to be reformation as to who is welcomed in the Lord's house. Who are welcome? Are the lame and the blind welcome? In the context, are the spiritually needy welcome? Are the people with gross, sinful past welcome? Are those that are perpetrators of great sins welcome? Or are they shunned? Are they left out? Are they made to feel unwelcome or express that they are, in fact, unwelcome? Do we understand that the issues, the problems of our society and culture are moral problems? They can't be solved with money or force. There needs to be a change of heart. Donald Trump, this week, made a very clear what the majority of Christians believe, excuse me, what the majority of people believe in this country of ours. Speaking of Ben Carson's story, and I'm not getting into that, I'm not a defender of Ben Carson, I just want to make this point. Donald Trump said that the idea that someone had a pathological problem and could be changed is garbage. He actually used a profanity for people that would think that. And he said, and a child molester cannot change. His whole idea was that the idea that we have that a person with this moral problem could bring about change is totally false. It's wrong. God cannot do that. And I didn't say God can't. He just said it can't happen. Anyone who believes that is a fool, is what he said. That's where our society is. That's where our culture is. But you know, that's where a lot of Christians are. A lot of Christians don't believe that certain people can change. That certain people can be transformed. That it is simplistic to think that the gospel can make a real difference in our culture, our society, or the safety of our world. The gospel can change people. The gospel can change society. We live in a period of time where religious persecution is on the increase. What is the answer to that? It's conversion. It's conversion. Think of the New Testament church. Think of what a difference it meant when a Saul became a Paul. When the greatest persecutor of the church became a true child of God. Moved from a religious person to a saved person. What a difference that makes.
What is the answer for the Islamic extremist? It's not a political solution. It's not a solution of war. It's not destruction. It's salvation. What a difference this world would be if Islamic extremists came to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that the King of kings and the Lord of lords can bring that to pass? We need to be praying for those on the mission field. I love the statement of the Thesans. It is a reminder as to why we are here. The solution to the problems among the Endurical people are that they come to faith. We need to understand that. We live in a time where the church needs reform. The church is looking for a political solution. Jesus teaches us that it is a spiritual solution. He starts with a temple. Thirdly, Jesus' kingdom was a shock to the nation of Israel. What Jesus was proposing was shocking to the religious leaders. What Jesus did was shocking to the religious leaders. And I say to you, what is shocking to the church? Is what I'm saying to you shocking? Does it sound absurd? Where does Christianity need to be reformed? How do our actions and thinking need to be changed for this world to be a better place? For peace and righteousness to enter in. If you get nothing else from this message, get this. In bringing about change to this world, Jesus starts... with the temple. I submit to you that if we're going to see a real change in our society, if we're going to see a real turnaround in our culture, if we are going to become a more peaceful, humble, caring nation, it's not going to start as a result of the political system. And who we elect as president is going to start with a change in the church. The large church. The whole church. That which calls itself Christian. That changes its creed and its practice. To preaching the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And living under the laws of of God. If the church would transform, 
the world would be transformed. The reason our nation was different 200 years ago is not because the government was different 200 years ago. It's because the church was different 200 years ago. May we welcome Jesus into his church. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to have confidence and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see how often it is that the church actually contributed to the evils of this world as opposed to stand against them. Lord, help us to have eyes open and to understand how nominal Christianity is worse than even those that oppose Christianity. Help us to understand how deadly it is when people name the name of Christ but do not know him. Worship which they have no understanding of and teach doctrine that's not reflected in the scripture and live lives that don't express the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ over them. Oh, Lord, help us as a nation. Help us as a people of God. Help us even as a local church. Lord, help us to take seriously the call to righteousness and holiness and justice. Lord, help us to believe in you. Help us to believe that we have the answer. Help us to believe that through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the proclamation of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that people's lives can be changed. May we be committed to that in our worship, in our dealing with our neighbors, in our dealing with our children, in the dealing with even our enemies. May we pray for God to bring about a change in their lives through a personal knowledge with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the extremists of this world. I thank you for the missionaries. I thank you for the people of God who are giving their lives out of a desire to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. May their witness be powerful. Lord, we don't know how long it is till you return. Maybe there will be revival. Maybe there will be a time of great outpouring of your spirit and people coming to faith. I don't know. Oh, Lord, we just pray that in this intervening period of time, you would keep us faithful, keep us hopeful, keep us believing, keep us committed, keep us in line with you and your kingship. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.